what Wesley talked about is that that grace kind of comes in waves. And he talked about what he called a prevenient grace, which he said, and that's the grace that happens before any of us are even aware of what God's up to. You know, uh, it's the fact that that God just showers blessings downward. And and for some people, maybe a lot of people who shop in the free store, all that they are really experiencing in the moment is this prevenient grace. And it's the role of people in the community of faith to point out to other folks, hey, that's God's grace. And then it's what he talked about as a justifying grace. And we don't need to get the deep theology, but just when people awaken to it, or in the context of the spirituality network or any other kind of spirituality, just when we realize we actually are in a world where God and the spirit are present. And when we awaken to the fact that all those gifts are actually things that came from God, all of this is just God's desire to bless us. It changes us uh, from the inside out. Welcome to Awakening Lives, a podcast of the Spirituality Network. We seek to cultivate the awakened life through contemplative living in action. Joining me today is John Edgar. John, welcome so much. I am so delighted to have you here. Can we start? Can you do just a little brief uh, introduction about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a United Methodist pastor, have been for the last 45 years. I retired uh, from the main work I've been doing as the founding pastor of the United Methodist Church for All People and the executive director of community development for all people. And I retired uh, uh, last summer, uh, but for the 20 some years prior to that, I uh, had been involved in ministry on the south side of Columbus, um, birthing this church and an effort to build a truly sustainable, inclusive community. Well, I say you definitely have done that. Uh, and as someone who uh, just retired uh, in November last mm-hmm. year, uh, I, I'm sure you're finding it to be a huge blessing to mm-hmm. to have some extra free time to do exactly what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, indeed. And uh, uh, it's a nice pace. I'm involved in a couple of uh, fresh ventures, but also have more time and uh, less responsibilities. And it feels right at the age of 70. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So, uh, John, um, I had the great pleasure of reading your book, A Front Porch for All People, and I'd love to have a discussion about uh, some of the things that I pulled from the book and then just anything that uh, you want to address. So so, um, I spent most of my life in the corporate world, and one of the uh, things that really impressed me in your book uh, was your commitment to uh, the values that uh, you hold and the the commitment to a strategy, which I saw woven through everything that you did. I, I was so impressed from with my corporate hat on, uh, but I was also so impressed with um, just from a spiritual perspective the amazing work that you uh, had to do sharing God's message with the people on the south side of Columbus. So I wanted to start with um, what you identified as the core beliefs uh, in in your book. And I'll read those out loud for uh, the folks uh, who are listening. 
They were encountering God incarnate in the people and events of daily living. The Bible, and especially the life of Jesus, reveal God's nature and intentions. And finally, God invites us to be co-creators in the ongoing transformation of this world. I'm, I'm curious, how did these shape your ministries? And how, you know, what, what brought you back to these core beliefs? Right. Well, when I decided to write the book, Front Porch for All People, uh, my main intention was in, in the entire book to talk about what had happened over the 20 plus years that we had uh, developed this ministry called the Free Store and then Church for All People and a whole bunch of uh, activities to transform the community. And I wanted to talk about those events and how I thought those ideas could be adapted and replicated in other settings. Well, as I was working through just how to tell that story, it became increasingly clear to me that the story wouldn't make sense, at least to me, if at the very beginning, I didn't identify these three core beliefs that are how not only do we go about doing the work, but it's how the work makes sense. In other words, you know, in telling about the events, um, why did it happen and how could it thrive, um, all came back for me to these three core beliefs that have guided my life at its best across, you know, all, all these years. And so, um, you know, the first one, and again, you read them aloud, is this notion that God is active in the world. God made the world and then God didn't abandon it. And so it is possible uh, not only to see you know, the handiwork of God and to have confidence that God is active, you know, everything from pray our prayers to um, how God is trying to uh, nudge us to form community and help us to overcome challenges. So in other words, it didn't make sense for me to be able to look back and tell the story without reminding people that at least for me, I see it all through this lens of a God that is in the midst of the journey. And, and not that we pray and then God is this kind of magician or this genie in a bottle and does exactly what we want, but rather this confidence that God is in the midst of it. And then uh, the second core belief for me is that not only God is in the midst of it, but that I come from um, the Christian tradition. And so I am convinced that um, it is possible to turn to scripture and in the Bible to see uh, uh, the ancient pathway that God was taking and in the teachings, particularly of the prophets and the life and ministry of Jesus, there are lessons about how then shall we live. And those lessons can help any of us to find the path to be in harmony with God, with, with what God is intending. And then that leads then to this third notion that because the first are true, it's also true that God yearns for each of us to enter into this journey um, and to be co-creators with God as God is pulling creation forward in an effort to create the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And so for me, those three big ideas did indeed not only shape what we tried to do, but I'm convinced it's only when you remember those three things that our ministries and our journey 
actually come into focus. I, I, I love all of these statements and uh, I, I'm particularly moved by the third one. Uh, yeah. I've, I've thought for a long time that uh, we we were co-creators with with God. You know, we were made in God's image and uh, mm-hmm. and I believe it is, you know, our our call to to be co-creators. And I, I also love the part about transformation of the world. The, the vision of the Spirituality Network is awakening lives, transforming the world. You know, we need to be awoke, awoken to uh, what's going on in the world and, and not just be awake, but also do something with that awakening uh, to make the world as God intended it to be. So I, I'm just, those all really resonate with me. Would would add just one other thing that that do talk about in the book as a corollary to the last thing. Uh, not only are we invited to be co-creators, but God created humanity in such diversity, including its religious diversity. And I'm convinced that that that's not coincidental. It's part of the divine intention to have um, uh, something special in each one of us, and then that means that frequently we will be at our best as uh, the human community moving forward towards this divine intention when we do it inclusively uh, and so whether that's in a community on the south side where there are white folks and black folks and people of different ages and and gender orientation all kinds of things but i also, also think as the spirituality network uh manifest that it means we have much to learn from one another in different religious traditions and different spiritual pathways within those traditions. And so, you know, we, every one of us has something unique to contribute. And quite frankly, it's when we come together that the total becomes greater than the sum of the parts. I, a big amen from me. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. So one of the, the big uh, concepts in your your book is a divine economy of abundance. And again, uh, thinking back to my corporate history, I, I taught people about having a, an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen it played out so richly and so fully as I did in the way you described the, the work of your book. Um, one of the things that uh, just I was so moved by was the flow of donations and volunteers to the free store. That must have just been so incredible to see and to experience. Yeah, very much so. Uh, as described in the first chapter of the book, um, all the ministries that we've done through church and community development for all people. And at this point, we touch the lives of about 35,000 low-income people each year. It's in terms of a worshiping community, it's one of the most diverse United Methodist churches, at least in the country, in terms of social class and and racial diversity. Um, And we've done a whole bunch in housing development that we may get to later that over time has grown to be well in excess of $100 million. But it all started with this real simple direct service ministry. Uh, called the free store and we began back in 1999 and that time I was a district superintendent in the United Methodist Church and 
supervised 78 of the congregations here in central Ohio. And, and we launched this free store as a, as a real simple way to try to get people uh, from our churches who are mostly middle class, uh, a lot of small town suburban churches as well as urban neighborhood, um, to come together and do something useful in an inner city neighborhood. So we rented a storefront on Parsons Avenue on the south side of Columbus, and then we invited people in these churches to gather up gently used items and clothing, uh, other household um, things. And then we just gave them away to whoever came into the store. Um, and as indicated in the book, uh, we were immediately surprised by what happened. Uh, the number of shoppers was just exponentially more than we had anticipated. And maybe that shouldn't have surprised us looking back. I mean, after all, when you think about it, um, everybody you know, likes things on sale. And when everything in the store is absolutely free, it is attractive. And the merchandise changed by definition every single day because we simply gave away um, tomorrow what we received today. And, and so it went. And so it wasn't long before we were seeing 20,000 folks a year coming through the free store. So so that part surprised us, but maybe we should have thought thought it through ahead of time. But what really was startling was we never ran out of good things to give away. We've been doing this now for almost 25 years and every single day uh, the shelves are overfilled. In fact, the biggest challenge in operating the free store is not to be buried under the flow of donations. And there are now at least 80 other free stores that have grown up around the country, all based on this model in Columbus. And um, from the ones that I've interacted with, uh, this phenomenon is universal. Uh, there's always more stuff donated than we can possibly easily uh, give away. And so we started asking why. Um, and you know to, uh, to move the narrative along, um, it ultimately became clear to us that what we had stumbled into uh, is what we call the divine economy of abundance. And it's something that is it is foundational to um, to scripture as well. I mean, the, uh, the Bible begins with Genesis, which talks about a Garden of Eden that is, in essence, an economy of abundance. Uh, you know, yes, humans mess it up pretty quickly by, this, uh, by the second chapter of Genesis, but the divine intention remains. And the uh, New Testament concludes with images of that Garden of Eden restored. And then all along the way, uh, throughout Scripture, there are these stories about the return of God's intention of abundance and that scarcity is really just a human distortion of the divine plan. And so whether it's a manna in the wilderness where God feeds the people for 40 years and there's more than enough, uh, or whether it's uh, Jesus and the Gospels uh, feeding the multitudes and, and five loaves and two fish seem like not nearly enough. But when they're offered forward, they're multiplied and everyone eats and is satisfied. And so for us, it became this central defining image um, that not only is God's intention abundance, but that generosity triggers a return of that divine economy. And so when we give what we have, no matter how meager it may seem to us, God takes it and multiplies it. So any one person donating clothing may seem uh, insignificant, but it magnifies. And again, this notion, the total becomes greater than the sum of the parts. And for us, that has become the defining 
um, uh, springboard for every other ministry that we've ever done. Uh, to simply believe that if we take what's been entrusted to us, and in fact, if we give the best forward instead of the free store, which you know just gives what people don't want anymore, and yet God still finds a way to do something really good with that. And so we began to wrestle with what were the best gifts we'd ever received, and how might we give them forward uh, into ministry? Well, you know, it, one of the things that really uh, moved me when talking about this divine economy of abundance, you would think that uh, the people that come to the store get whatever is is there, not necessarily what they need. And I love the story of hmm. the man that needed size 14 boots. And, you know, how often are size 14 boots found right. in a location? And for you to have exactly what that man needed was right. just grace filled. Right. Yeah. And and the the volunteers and now is it's grown the you know, staff as well as volunteers, you know, um encounter this ongoing narrative uh that lines up with the one illustration that that you highlighted, where folks will come in and ask for something and and either uh, it's so unique and it's there, or in the case of the size 14 shoes, uh, while the guy was there making the request, the shoes actually were donated and came in through, quote, the back door uh, where the donations are. And so, um, and, and that has a way of renewing um, our spirits. In other words, some of this is about, look. in my opinion, it's about looking for where God is already present and having eyes to see. And so when we when we succumb to a mindset of scarcity, what we see is scarcity. In other words, we, you know, we, we are filled with our own anxieties about there won't be enough. I mean, just like the Hebrew children who had gotten out of Egypt are wandering in the wilderness and are afraid they're going to starve. And so, you know, they become so preoccupied with that. They're talking about, well, let's just go back and be slaves again. But when manna comes from heaven, as it does in one way or another, uh, and if we start looking for it, we see it, and we realize that there's more than enough, and then our sharing becomes contagious. Uh, and and one act of sharing uh, intrigues and encourages the next person. Yep. So uh, that kind of leads into one of the three tenets that uh, are part of that divine economy of abundance: the the notion that the glass is half full. Yes, and 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 the approach you took of a an asset-based approach to uh finding out what you could do versus a needs-based approach of what what does what's lacking in the community and how do you fill that that hole to this is what we have to offer let us give it to you yeah yeah very much so um and there is a whole school of thought called asset-based community development uh, it emerged out of some folks in Chicago 40 or 50 years ago. So um, we're not claiming to have created that, but we see ourselves very much in line with that philosophy. And and yes, um, in its most simple form, it's the notion of affirming that the glass is half full rather than half empty. And of course, at one level, you can say, well, that's just semantics. It's the same glass. It's the same amount of water. But as I often say when I'm trying to explain this concept to folks or consulting with other churches, no, there's a world of difference because 
the reality is uh, if you are thirsty, uh, you're going to look at that glass and whether you whether somebody says it's half full or half empty, if you're thirsty, you're going to drink the water that is there. And that's what matters. In other words, the water itself is the resource. It's the asset and it's putting it to use. And again, it may seem simple, but quite frankly, uh, once you start to peel back the veneer and look at it more carefully, the reality is all ministry, all ministry is asset-based. In other words, you can't make anything from nothing. So just focusing on what is perceived to be needed or what is lacking uh, really doesn't get anything accomplished. You know, we move forward and again, uh, you know, being co-creators in this emerging kingdom of God, when we take the resources that are available, even when we think the glass is just half full, but take what's there and begin to organize it. Uh, and again, any ministry that you've ever, anybody's ever been part of, if you are, uh, if you deconstruct it, in other words, break it into its essential elements, what you end up with are a, are a series of resources and assets beginning with the people themselves. And so uh, for us, as we launched Church for All People, we were looking at the, the shoppers and the volunteers as assets and what we could do together. And then as we uh, have been striving for the whole period of time, just to listen to people talk about not so much their needs, but we invite people to talk about their hopes, dreams, and aspirations. What are you yearning for? And then what do we have that we can put together um, to help um, people achieve their aspirational goals. And so um, that's been the trajectory of all of our ministries. It also means for us, at least, that most of the times we started very small because frequently, um, even inside this divine economy of abundance, frequently they're, they're in an, any given moment, there are limits to the assets people are willing to commit. There's not really a limit to the resources that are out there, but but what are people willing to do, even of our own time, our passion, our money, whatever. Um, and so we had found that most of the ministries work best when we can identify a key aspirational goal that a number of people really yearn for. We try to make certain we're lining up with the divine intention in the midst of that in, you know, uh, in pursuing true north. And then then start. Start small, but start. It's certainly been our, ex our experience in, uh, in all of the, the ministries that have flourished uh, through community development for all people. Yeah, yeah. That's, so several things that stand out for me there. Uh, first of all, there's the notion of simplicity. Mm -hmm. uh, simplicity is beautiful and it's it's hard to achieve sometimes because we tend to overcomplicate things but mm -hmm. i think there's so much value in getting people behind a simple concept uh yeah. i believe that there is so much value in the mindset that we have uh that determines the the flow that uh, we're going to take or the 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 results that we're going to achieve and i also appreciate the notion of starting small I think there and sometimes there's a tendency to want to get all of our ducks in a row and have everything taken care of. I, I listened to a podcast the other day when I was walking. They did a study where um, they gave uh, people uh, like five bits of 
information and they were uh, they evaluated how correct they were based on those five pieces of information. It mm-hmm. turns out they were about 17% right and they had about 19% confidence that they were right. Uh, so you know not not uh, not unusual. Yeah. Uh, and then they started adding more bits of information until they got up to like 200 bits of information. Well, as it turns out, they were still only about 17% right, <laughs> even 200 bits of information, but they were twice as confident. <laughs> so, so, you know, there, there's value to just getting out there and doing something right. and then course correcting afterwards. Right. Yeah, very much so. And um, in and maybe part of it's just my own temperament. I don't like to sit still, but I've also found that, that there is, you know, some uh, theory behind it, the whole notion of uh, of praxis uh, out of Latin American theology, action, reflection. There is a lot to be said for starting the journey and then still attempting to be alert and, and spiritually attuned uh, to sense those mid-course, not only corrections, but sometimes you got to start and get around the first bend in the road before you can see what the rest of what's in front of you. And so for a multitude of reasons, I, I think there is merit in um, in starting small uh, and getting underway reasonably soon. However, having said that, though, you know, um, you know, I am convinced that there are at least two core building blocks, so to speak, that it should always be in place before we start when, you know, one, and I, I, I said, I'm real quick before, but one is just to listen to the people in the community that you want to be in ministry with. And so what are their hopes? What are their dreams? You know, and how do we do ministry with people instead of to, for, or upon them? And, and so it, it's always worth taking the time to do that. Uh, and then likewise, Ideally, and again, for me, it's back to some of the power of the whole spirituality network. You know, we are fundamentally spiritual beings, you know, in a human body. And and so, you know, hopefully we're in a lifelong journey of of attempting to sense God's presence around us and within us. And so when I'm talking about on any given ministry, you know, um, you know, the glass is half full, take the resources you have and use them and get started. I, I do believe that. And I do believe in action reflection. Uh, I also think that those two things, you know, we have to get those right or we'll always go in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, but fortunately, absolutely. You know, we can redirect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that that notion of ministry with rather than ministry to has yeah. been a, a tenant of the spirituality network. Uh, that is our desire to be in ministry with. It feels very different uh, to the person who you're in ministry with if you're in ministry to them. Yeah, I, it, Sometimes you, you feel like you're a project uh, <laughs> when you're in ministry to that person. And, uh, you know, this, this notion of listening is speaks to the second element of radical hospitality. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, you so clearly articulated in the book. It wasn't just people coming in to find things that they need. They were welcome. They were, you know, you asked about them, you included them, you offered them a cup of tea or coffee. So mm-hmm. that that is a remarkable difference from going into Target or uh, right. or into Walmart or wherever. 
Yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, is looking back on our journey and then in writing a book about well, what did what do I think we have to offer you know forward to folks? Yes, along with this notion that hey, we dwell inside a divine economy of abundance, and so we you know give forward what you have, and God will multiply. Generosity triggers you know a return of abundance. The the next really big idea for us was the the value of practicing what we talk about as radical hospitality. And uh, because hospitality, I'm convinced, is the platform, uh, the foundation for building relationships of mutuality. And I think it's especially critical in our current um, society where there's such polarization in so many, you know, uh, facets of life, you know, uh, whether it's a political spectrum, whether it's divisions over race, religion, age, you know, um, um, you know we are um, so splintered that if we want to build community, um, which which I think many of us really do, you know, uh, back to I said in the book, I I wrote the book for those who. Um, desire to live in a sustainable, inclusive community and care enough to do something about it, you know. And uh, uh, you know, and 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 I think that practicing uh, hospitality is actually the building block that gets us um, at least uh, to uh, a playing field where, where other things can occur. And so for us, what that meant was, well, we had this vehicle of the free store where people were coming, and then how could we? turn it from a transaction into a relationship. In other words, people came because, hey, there's free stuff here. And people you know, w- wanted to at least see was any of that stuff something that they viewed as beneficial. Uh, and so for us, it was then uh, interweaving with that, with that encounter, that transaction. Well, how do you turn that into positive relationships? And so um, as I talk about in the book, there were there were several aspects of what we did, you know, with hospitality. Um, also, um, uh, yeah, as I uh, you know, talk about, one of the things that helped me with the whole notion of hospitality is that that hospitality. Um, well, well, first of all, the New Testament was all originally written in Greek, and in the original Greek language, the word for hospitality is an interesting word. It, it's philozenia, and it's a compound word where phila is one of three Greek words for love. And xenia means stranger. And so in Greek, when you say, well, let's go do some, you know, uh, some hospitality, it says, let's go love some strangers. And uh, and I just always found that that helpful uh, to keep in mind that that's really what we're trying to do. Because again, I think it then speaks to how hospitality in its core is intended to spark, to initiate a relationship, to you know, to love the stranger that God has sent, with the hopes that we become neighbors. And so, um, for us, uh, some of that hospitality was just uh, you know you're talking about going to Target. Was so was as simple as really the Walmart greeter. In other words, you know you know uh, we wanted from the moment you came onto the property, you know we were glad you were there, and so we we have people that welcome folks in, just help you feel comfortable. Uh, yes, you know uh, very early on we decided that if we, this was going to ever become relationships, not just transactions, 
we we wanted to slow it down some too. Uh, now part of that just happened because we had so many shoppers, you know, and so you know people literally um, had to wait their turn to shop, uh, and but then that meant we could provide free coffee and other you know just expressions of of hospitality, and so then we could slow down and talk, and and I still find that to be the single most enjoyable part. For me, even in retirement, it's like, you know, I, I still worship at church for all people and come in and out. It's just to hang out uh, and talk with people and build relationships. Um, uh, and then uh, at the same time, um, is a, a talk uh, some in trying to describe our journey with this. We also looked at things that maybe wouldn't seem to be uh, traditional expressions of hospitality, but that I'm convinced were really key you know, to what we were able to do. Um, one of them was just the location of the free store. It's on Parsons Avenue. And uh, the original free store was there. We're now in our third location as we've gotten bigger over time. But we always stayed on Parsons Avenue because for folks who are familiar with uh, Columbus and its South Side, particularly when we started 27 years ago, Parsons Avenue was a pretty hard dividing line. It was literally where the red line for the banks had been drawn to, you know, uh, in terms of where they would loan and where they wouldn't. But um, on the east side of Parsons was predominantly low income, African-American folks, uh, particularly when we started, like I said, you know, now 20, 25 years ago. And the west side of Parsons was, was white and uh, some sections of it back even then we're much more affluent around German Village. But the, the avenue was this dividing line. But both white and black people felt reasonably safe on Parsons Avenue. It's where the buses ran, the library, the post office, all those kinds of things. So anyway, so by being on Parsons Avenue, we could telegraph to people that we wanted you to come and be with us, whether you were white or black. And uh, and in those early uh, years, when there was a lot of racial tension uh, on the South Side, it made a difference that we were there. And then um, the other thing that I uh, highlight um, is that as an act of hospitality, and this was very intentional, we decided there would be no uh, requirements of eligibility to the shop in the free store. In other words, no one ever had to prove they were quote, worthy of our charity. You know, um, you're worthy because you're a beloved child of God. If you want to come and shop, come and shop. Um, and and we're glad to embrace you. And so those things um, were were helpful. Um, and and they did, um, uh, you know, they were seeds that gradually germinated and grew and, and have flourished and borne good fruit. I mean, I don't think we could have ever launched such an inclusive worshiping congregation if we hadn't built relationships of trust and um, uh, and mutual caring uh, that emerged through the free store, but grounded in that hospitality. Yeah, yeah. I I had not heard the word philozenia uh, before uh, reading your book. Um, obviously, I've heard of Philadelphia, right. uh, and you know it makes me think. Traditionally, or most often, churches are good at uh, sharing Philadelphia yeah. because they know one another. Uh, and uh, this was just a beautiful example of reaching out 
listening to the community. And I imagine what's happening is it's moving from Philizenia to Philadelphia as, as <laughs> yeah. you gather and worship together. Right. It, it is very much. And uh, in fact, when you throw the other word in, and uh, is uh, in uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author does uh, this play on word telling the folks they should never neglect Philadelphia, um, you know, uh, and or always embrace Philadelphia, but do not forget Philadelphia. Uh, and so, yeah, um, they are interwoven and one can lead to, to the other. So, yeah, for us, uh, it's been one of the most delightful parts uh, of the whole journey is the fact that when we extend hospitality, it frequently is reciprocated. In other words, there's no guarantee. Um, and the other person always has their own freedom of agency, you know, you know how they choose to respond. But uh, again, I think God's in the midst of all of this. And I think God wired us so that, you know, when somebody reaches out to us, makes that, you know, first uh, act of kindness or friendship or just, you know, um, um, hospitality, a welcome, uh, that we are prone to respond to that positively. And it's, it's amazing um, the barriers that can be bridged um, just through those simple uh, activities. I also think it is very time consuming. And so for me, that's been one of the other um, uh, lessons and, and, uh, and kind of one of the things that I, I find myself mulling over, uh, even at this point in my journey. The, the things that we describe in the book, I, I'm convinced that they work. I mean, they happen, so in that sense, it's real. I also do believe they're um, they're adaptable, they're applicable in other settings. And you know, in in the last fifteen or twenty years, I've done a fair amount of consulting and coaching. Um, with folks, uh, and that continues even now, you know, in various churches. Uh, and, and so I believe very much in these things, but this is not instantaneous. In fact, there's almost um, a, a true juxtaposition between what, what I was saying before, which I believe is that when we talk about doing a ministry, start small, but start, you know, don't drag it out forever. Um, and that part's true, but things grow slowly over time and and so it requires a level of uh, dedication even tenacity i think uh, to um, uh, follow on the pathway that uh, the book a front porch for all people describes uh, yeah uh, you know, so anyway yeah so you know for those who want instantaneous success i i, I don't think i have the formula for that but i do think you know, we have uh, found and come onto a pathway that really does work if people will invest in it. And things like the relationships formed through hospitality, I think, are where the rewards are throughout the journey that make it um, self-generating, you know, to continue forward because of the value of just the friendship that emerge along the way. Yeah, and, and I think that's particularly important. Uh, especially in the polarized times that we're in right now. You know, mm -hmm. diversity is very rich and we have so many blessings from our diversity, but there are challenges associated with it too. Right. You know, I, I think that we do receive the energy that we put out into the universe. 
And for people that have been marginalized or are living in poverty, there may not be uh, an inclination to put back exactly the same energy that uh, they're receiving. So Mm -hmm. it it takes uh, some grace on the part of the volunteers to be gentle and patient as they allow that trust to build with with other people. Yeah, Yeah. so the the last uh, tenet uh, associated with the abundance of economy was that grace is touchable. Uh, I I love that notion. Grace is a gift. uh, And to be able to feel it and touch it just uh, is is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And uh, and again, in our journey uh, of having uh, birthed the church out of the free store and then uh, a whole range of direct services and housing development, this notion of touching grace um has uh, been just foundational so one more time to uh, uh take a, a quick side trip into ancient greek uh, uh that uh, the word that christian folks loves so much of grace and and you know and we sing about amazing grace and all these other things and and it is a good word uh but um the greek word is charis and charis simply means gift and so if you lived in the first century in the emergence uh, you know, of, of the ministry of Jesus and then, and then the birth of the church, and if you were speaking Greek, which was the kind of common you know, language that connected so many of the, these ancient cultures, um, and if you said, you know, charis, it just meant gift. It, you know, if you like somebody, you give them a charis and if it was their birthday, they could get charis, you know, birthday gifts. But the early church uh, claimed the word uh, with a very intentional meaning. And the early church began to talk about charis as meaning any gift from God. And so anytime that you know, we today are talking about receiving grace or, or you know, showers of blessing and grace and all the rest of that. We're really talking about um, the gifts that come to us from God and in the Christian tradition that we, that we recognize through Christ. So those gifts are everywhere in, in any tradition. And so for us, um, we were interested really from the very beginning, because this was an idea that would, had been in my head in ministry even prior to when we launched the free store. And so the other thing that um, was very intentional, even though I've, I have certainly gotten blowback from certain folks across the years, is um, that everything is free in the free store because then people will touch grace. In other words, every item in the free store is grace. It just literally is. It's a free gift from God. And so some folks have argued with me, well, it'd be better if folks pay a little and it would, you know, they their self-respect uh, respect would be higher. And, and the older I've gotten, the less inclined I am to want to argue with other people who are trying to do good on their path. And I really mean that. And, but by the same token, I... I know absolutely why it's all free in the free store. And again, it's all back that we want people to touch grace and we want to then be able to celebrate that grace. And so um, one of the images of this or a narrative that I often share and I include in the book is I just invite people to think and and I uh, just in the book describe a particular person and and um, 
uh, and, and Mary and that she comes regularly and she shops for the folks in, in her family. And uh, and so she'll get you know clothes for her two kids and for her husband and something for herself. And then I, I just invite people to think about the fact that that's grace. And so, you know, every time she picks up an item of clothing, you know, that that's God's grace. And she gets a, you know, a shopping bag full of grace and she carries it home with her. Or, you know, uh, sometimes she rides the bus and she holds a bag of grace in her lap and she gets home. And she spreads out those items, you know, for her kids. And and what she's doing is spreading out gifts from that are, you know, given um, in the name of God and Christ. They're their grace. And then my favorite part is I, you know, whenever I tell this story, is I just in, uh, imagine the next day after Mary's been shopping in the free store, kids get up and they literally clothe themselves in grace. It's tangible. It's touchable. And um, and then not to get too much into preaching, you know, in this podcast. But if you'll allow me for just go one step further with this, um, that uh, admittedly a whole lot of people who come to the free store aren't thinking about this in terms of you know divine grace. But I, I'm I'm not only a Christian pastor, but I am part of the United Methodist tradition, and and in our tradition. Um, uh, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, uh, uh, was very, I think, astute and articulate in talking about understanding how grace can work. And so while some of the language I'm going to share with you just very, very briefly is distinctive in the Methodist tradition, I believe it's applicable, quite frankly, across the faith world. But um, what Wesley talked about is that that grace kind of comes in waves. And he talked about what he called a provenient grace, which he said, and that's the grace that happens before any of us are even aware of what God's up to. You know, uh, it's the fact that that God just showers blessings downward. And and for some people, maybe a lot of people who shop in the free store, all that they are really experiencing in the moment is this provenient grace. But what Wesley talked about was, but it all connects. And it's the role of people in the community of faith to point out to other folks, hey, that's God's grace. And then it's what he talked about as a justifying grace. And we don't need to get the deep theology, but just when people awaken to it or in the context of the spirituality network or any other kind of spirituality, just when we realize we actually are in a world where God and the spirit are present. And when we awaken to the fact that all those gifts are actually things that came from God. All of this is just God's desire to bless us. It changes us uh, from the inside out. And then in, in Wesley's kind of topology, uh, they said, well, you know, well, that's great, but there's still another part of it. You know, God's gifts, God's grace ultimately lead to what he called a, a sanctifying grace. But what he meant was where we, we become so aware that we can't stop ourselves from wanting to participate in it and give grace gifts forward ourselves. And so for us, the free store created this pipeline, this pathway, and we see it all the time. I mean, um, people will come and shop in the free store and, and to some degree, they become overwhelmed by the hospitality, you know, the fact that people are being kind and loving to them and, and they get these free gifts. And they start um, realizing afresh that, yeah, 
we are inside this divine economy and it, this is God blessing me and I can give forward too. So we frequently see even among the economically poorest folks in our community, people will give forward. In other words, you know, if their kids, you know, grow out of a certain size of, of, you know, of genes, but there's still some life worth in it, people will come to shop and bring stuff with them when they come to shop, you know, so that, you know, excuse me, so they can give those gifts for somebody else. Mm. And people will, will shop and see something that they think will be great for their neighbor and they'll take it to them. And, and then people volunteer their time, which is often the greatest gift and, and on and on it goes. And so for us, the church got birthed out of this environment of, um, of a sense that 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 God is here, God's making it abundant, that when we slow down, we can tra change transactions into relationships. And when we gather as this community that's awakened to the fact that God loves us so much, that God blesses us, then we want to share that. And we want you know, to, to make that contagious and life-changing. And so that birthed the church. And again, it's in no way a gigantic church, it's not a mega church, I don't think ever will be, but it is um, very spirit filled. Um, I'm, I'm convinced its diversity leads to that. And again, um, is, um, you know, I hope I'm not droning on too long, but one of the things that we talk about is um, that diversity is really a blessing um, you know, because God is present in each of us, but it's just a, you know a, a facet of that divine, and it's only as we come together, you know, um, you know, as uh, in the tradition, uh, Christian tradition, the Apostle Paul talking about we're the body of Christ, but what kind of body would we be if we were all hands or all feet, and and if we were all eyes, where would the hearing be? But it takes all the parts together, and so uh, maybe to push forward then just a little bit. What we have found at Church for All People is that we use these direct services to build relationships. And then we use the relationships to build an inclusive body of Christ. And the inclusive body, because it's inclusive, is actually uniquely filled with the divine spirit and divine power. And that that's what allows us to then go forth and transform our community. And so while we do that in a variety of, of ways, you know, we run this fresh market that provides fruits and vegetables and youth ministry and a bunch of other stuff. But um, perhaps maybe to push on for just a moment to, to what is maybe the most visible to the rest of, uh, of Central Ohio, what we do is we got involved in the development of affordable housing. But this mm -hmm. same concept, it's a divine economy of abundance. The glass was half full and somebody turned over to us in 2005, one vacant blighted duplex and, and gave us the money to hire people from the congregation to work to fix it up. And, you know, and, um, and so we started small. And in the book, I talk about all the mistakes we made because, you know, sometimes when the glass is half full, there are also things that uh, maybe you wish you'd had, like in our case, a licensed contractor and an architect. But we we didn't but you know we ultimately got it done even though the city shut us down for a while but but we started small but we kept going and we built you know um collaborations with nationwide children's hospital in particular and and um 
and and gradually grew in, and we have uh, done uh, at the time the book was written over a hundred million dollars of affordable housing, and and you know now it's about uh, what's well, closing in on two years since I wrote those words in the manuscript, you know, before it you know was published, and I don't know, uh, uh, we're somewhere between one hundred twenty-five and one hundred and fifty million dollars worth of housing development at this time. Um, well, I, and, I tell you, you know, I've got your book right here. And you yeah. probably can't see it, but I've got <laughs> so many pages dog-eared uh, where, you know, as I was reading along, I was like, oh, I got to talk to John about this, or I have yeah. to talk about John about this. And then I got to the housing section, and I was so overwhelmed with the story that I stopped dog-earing uh, <laughs> and just wanted to embrace uh, the amazing work that was done there. It was... Uh, it was inspired. It it clearly was painful part of the way, uh, but uh, I, I I'm curious. Did you always have this dream of all of the church and the housing and the healthcare? Was that all part of the the dream, or did it kind of evolve along the way? Uh, it certainly evolved along the way. I think the part that was always there was an absolute yearning to want to, to um, uh, launch a church that would become um, a front porch of the kingdom of God. In other words, we wanted to do that. In other words, we wanted to believe, uh, and, and those of us that came together to launch the church, including Donita Harris, who's one of the really driving forces in the spirituality network until her very untimely death, you know, uh, with pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, she and I, uh, my wife and a variety of other folks. Um, yeah, we had this dream that, that, um, that faith should always transfer into action and that a church should, um, attempt to become the center of its community and, you know, and, uh, and have a light that shines out for. So those things we aspired for. Um, and, and I don't want to overstate it, but we actually accomplished more than we ever thought we would. I mean, I just don't really know a better way to say it in terms of that impact, you know? And so we became, we, at this point in my journey, I, I actually believe that it is possible to create a sustainable mixed income community that is spiritually vibrant. And, and, and yes, from my own perspective, I think we, we, we move forward and get closest to God when we stay within a particular faith tradition that works for us. But I think God's involved in all these different traditions, you know, and, um, and so I think we can talk about building a front porch of the kingdom of God, a front porch for all people that also uh, not only tolerates, but is enriched and, and is made more real uh, as we welcome people of, of other faiths, you know, to the journey uh, with us. And, uh, uh, and then maybe one of the things it is in the latter parts of the book, they talk about that we were able to hit scale, whether it was in healthcare ministries yeah, um, or in housing, um, as we uh, we're able to collaborate and find other partners for the journey, and and so we have lots of partners, I and mean, we do a lot of stuff, you know, with the city of Columbus, and uh, you know, that provides money for housing, and with the United Way, and 
and with um, various kinds of um, of business and philanthropic groups, the Columbus Foundation, incredibly helpful. It, and then our strongest partnership that I would just highlight, not because it's the strongest, because I want to make a, a particular point, has been with Nationwide Children's Hospital. And and I am convinced that that it's that's in part because they're we share the same neighborhood. And it's a very large, um, you know, institution. They're now fourteen or fifteen thousand employees, and so they, they bring all kinds of strengths and resources, and we benefit from that. And don't want to minimize that. But what we found with the hospital is that we we could achieve uh, common ground when we realized that we could translate our language back and forth in other words you know uh, you know we were talking about building a front porch of the kingdom of god you know um and notions of shalom and wholeness and you know and and uh and coming together where diversity you know uh creates an ultimate sense of, of unity and harmony uh, and in Nishwan Children's Hospital, we found folks talking about what's known as the social determinants of health. This notion that, and they talk about this all the time, that, that um, they are the second largest pediatric hospital in the country. Uh, and, and simultaneously, they say that they think the health outcome of any child, only 20% of it is determined by the medical care they receive. The other 80% of whether a child thrives is a combination of health behaviors of the family and what's going on in the social environment around them. And so they became very fascinated with trying to move the needle on social determinants of health. And housing is seen as the foundational social determinant of health and along with food security and, and, um, and education and, uh, and income. And so, um, we were able to come together with the hospital uh, around this notion of wanting to create a community that was healthy and where the social determinants of health would be shifted to create better health outcomes for children and their families. And so, um, yeah, I talk a bunch more about that in the book and, and where there was enlightened self-interest, you know, uh, which is a part of it, you know, on everybody's side. But, but for us, um, it, it is, it's these, these notions, it's a divine economy of abundance. We, we move from transactions to relationships with radical hospitality. We can do ministry so people touch grace and then respond to grace and then are grace filled. And then we come together and we form this body that because it's diverse is more spiritually powerful. And then we can go back out and the same direct services we started with that helped us create the community, then themselves grow and snowball. And we can create this inclusive community, which by its very nature then is attractive even in secular settings for people who want to use a language of social determinants of health or people who come from other faith traditions. But together, what we're doing is in the most generic language, creating a front porch for all people, which is what I chose for the book. And from my faith tradition, oh, we're building a front porch of the kingdom of God. Uh, and it's inside a divine economy of abundance. And so there's nothing to stop us as long as we don't give up and continue to believe back to those same key principles, you know, that all this happens 
in, in a divine plan where God wants us to be co-creators and God gently you know, pulls us forward, invites us you know, onto this front porch and on to the next level of creating you know, this inclusive, lasting expression of the divine intention. It's a dream so, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a beautiful dream and it's, it's, uh, it's become a reality. So I, I'm curious, uh, what, what words of advice would you have for people in ministry that, that uh, are inspired by your success, uh, whether they're in a corporate setting where they're in ministry together with other people or on their own? What, what words of advice would you offer? Well, um, I think what I would uh, offer forward is that, first of all, it is possible to have transformational impact. In other words, you know, it when, um, because it's a divine economy of abundance, when we share what we have to offer, God will take it and multiply it. And, and so I, I think at that level, kind of core identity and even personal agency is to believe that you can make a difference. And so invest yourself. I, I think that's, that's one key part of it. Um, I, and then uh, the next thing I would say is that um, the, the journey is always done in some level of community. You know, it doesn't have to be an organized church, but but um, I, I also believe that we we are made and shaped to um, make this journey uh, with one another. And so the other thing I, you know, that I believe is that folks should look for uh, who will be in the journey with them. You know, you know who who to dream with, who to work side by side with, and um, and uh, when in doubt. Uh, strive to be more diverse than you thought you were going to at the beginning. Because, because again, because there's so much of God that's uniquely in each different person that when we come together, and again, I think it's one of the strengths of the spirituality network. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of built into the very fabric, you know, of your ethos um, to embrace different strands to come together. Um, and so I think that's part of it. And then um, the other thing I would, I would just say is that, um, uh, in essence, um, say yes to trying to move on some particular pathway. In other words, give what you have, find others to work with you, and then choose something that you believe um, represents the divine plan. You know, where is God trying to to pull you or and we all of us forward, and pick some part of that, and then then stay at it. You know it. Um, it, it'll take time, but the, the reward is in the relationships and the relationships, um, you know, take time, but they also can germinate some of it quickly that becomes self-fulfilling and rewarding as you go on. So anyway, those are some thoughts. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah, read the book, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Read the book. You, you inspire me. I'm, I'm curious about what's le what's next for John Edgar. Yeah. Um, so uh, at this point in my journey, uh, I you know, am blessed with good health and uh, um, and the freedom to choose how I use my time. And so um, so I, I'm doing to be keep this real brief. But 
I stay very much engaged with church for all people. You know, it's it's my spiritual home and it's where I you know spend spend time and worship, but also hanging out. But in addition to that, um, I am involved in in um, in, uh, in in a couple of different things I'll, I'll name quickly. One, I am spending some of my time just working with local churches that are interested in kind of being on this the same uh, type of journey. Everyone's unique, and so how do you adapt it? Um, and uh, so that I'm having fun with that. Um, on the United Methodist side, we're actually forming a statewide network of people uh, that want to do ministry at the intersection of congregational development and community development. And we're launching that initiative statewide uh, in September. And I think that that is uh, it's what's being known, uh, called the Ohio United Methodist Community Development Collaborative. But it's the idea that we can um, uh, reinforce and encourage each other on the journey. Um, maybe the most visible thing I'm part of is that in retirement, I'm uh, uh, helping to launch a brand new non profit that's called Columbus Housing Enterprise. It's actually the, the dream of being come to reality of two very philanthropic individuals who are developers who have given a lot to this community. Uh, Bob Weiler, who's now somewhere in his 80s, and his longtime business colleague, Don Kelly, who's 94. And um, these guys, I've always been interested in housing, Don Kelly in particular, was incredibly helpful to community development for all people all along the way. Um, but these guys are, were looking around and seeing the challenge in central Ohio of the acute housing shortage that's exacerbated when uh, not only are certain affordable uh, houses uh, kind of flipped to become high-end uh, gentrified, but the same thing is happening with entire apartment complexes. And these guys have developed a lot of uh, apartment housing. And so to try to keep this very, very brief, they decided to take $100 million of the housing they had developed and to sell it into this nonprofit for $50 million. In other words, for half of its value. And this new nonprofit's sole mission is to make certain that these rents always remain affordable. And then, you know, uh, so we're doing that. And hopefully the generosity of uh, Bob Weiler and Don Kelly will inspire other folks to make similar kinds of philanthropic uh, donations. So I'm uh, doing that. And, uh, and then I continue to do just a little bit of uh, work with Nationwide Children's Hospital to try to uh, maximize this whole notion of how do we move the needle on social determinants of health uh, in the South Side and now up in the Linden community as well. So I'm staying busy with those things and with my wife traveling more. And so uh, grateful um, to be able to dwell on the front porch as it emerges. <laughs> well, I am grateful for you, John. Thank you for all the wonderful blessings that you've done. Like I said, you inspire me. Um, for those listening, if you're not aware, John is going to be honored at our Living Faith Awards on October 12th with the Enduring Hope Award. And I can't think of anyone more worthy. I, I look forward to celebrating with you uh, on that, John. Yeah, well, I very much appreciate um, you know, the recognition and uh um, uh, looking forward to a chance to speak a little bit during that event as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. For, for all of you uh, listening, thank you for joining us today for Awakening Lives. 
This is one more way the Spirituality Network connects people with resources for spiritual growth and depth, regardless of faith tradition, through education and training, spiritual direction for individuals and groups, and community programs and events. Ecumenical and Interfaith, the Spirituality Network honors diversity and does not proselytize. If you wish to know more about our programming, including tickets for the Living Faith Awards, please visit us at spiritualitynetwork.org. Join us again next month as we explore ways to awaken our lives and transform the world.